Dear friends, fellow sinners redeemed by Christ, gathered here to hear God's word of unlimited and boundless mercy and forgiveness. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to us today in his word by the Holy Spirit. Amen. What are you worth? Are you worthy? Questions such as these send our brains scrambling to account for everything that we have and everything that we are. So quickly now, add them up. Your bank accounts. Tally your estate holdings. Check your investment portfolio. And for goodness sakes, don't forget the piggy banks. They have pennies and nickels and quarters. There are more in there than you think probably. But is it enough? Are you worth enough? And how can you be sure about it? We're never quite sure we have enough, so we're always on the hunt for a little more. Better to have a little more just to be safe, right? And as, we're, as long as we're adding up our value, well, we can also remember that our worth isn't just in the dollars and cents that we have accumulated. We're also worth something in the work that we do, right? Those things that we can produce or, uh, or serve. But even here, the questions don't change. We still ask ourselves, is it enough? Have I done enough? How do I know that I've done enough? And so we err on the safe side, right? And we think, well, I better just do a little bit more. But it never ends, does it? And that leads us to notice that it's not just what we have or what we do that, value, uh, that are of value about us, but it's also our relationships that are valuable, right? With our friends and our family, with our neighbors, and even with the people in your church, when you look across the pew, aren't you of more value than just what you have in your wallet? But I dare say that even in these relational values, we still ask the same sorts of questions. Have I been a good enough friend? Have I cared for my next door neighbor properly? What do I need to do in order to be more acceptable in the eyes and the sight of those around me? Do my friends and my family find me worthy? Just to be on the safe side, maybe I'll be a little kinder next week. It's that little voice of insecurity, that constant nagging doubt that keeps us searching and knocking and looking for those last few pennies of worth that we think will make us whole. It's a trap, don't you know? There's no end to it. Counting on your worthiness is a never-ending hamster wheel. We think we're going someplace, but it just keeps going around and around. It's what we call the rat race, after all. Or, in mythological terms, it's the endless rock-pushing of Sisyphus up the mountain 
only to start over again and again. It's a curse. For as soon as you start looking inside of yourself for your worthiness, for your worth and your security, you will always find yourself lacking something. You'll always need just a little more to be safe. For the pit of the self is always deeper than it looks. And the carefully piled mountains of self-esteem that we've all built so well for ourselves come tumbling down at inopportune moments. And even though Jesus warns us of this, even though he comforts us by telling us again and again in various ways that in losing everything, that is money and possessions, home and family and reputation, even losing your very selves, he promises that we will never lose him. And yet, still, we seek more security than simply his word of promise. We need something to hold on to, something to cling to. In the third chapter of Ruth, we continue the story that we've been listening to the past two weeks. You know the story quite well by now, I imagine. Ruth joining to her mother-in-law, who has seen tragedy. She left Israel because of famine. She moved in to the Moabite land, where her husband and her sons found wives before all three of them died. Having endured famine and the death of their husbands, times were dire. Life was in jeopardy. Ruth clings to Naomi, leaving her home country to reside with Naomi in Israel as a foreigner with little. The situation, as we read today in chapter 3, is no longer as urgent and dangerous as the last two chapters. For now, they have found enough security for today. They have a little bit of food. They have a little bit of shelter. For, Lu for Ruth is allowed to go and glean in the fields to pick up whatever is left after the harvest in order to feed herself and Naomi and the other widows that are with them. And Boaz has even told his workers to leave a little extra behind and let them take some of the choice harvest out for themselves. So their lives now are not in direct jeopardy any longer. But the future still is in question for them. There is still that nagging voice of concern for a safe and secure future. It's the constant question. Do we have enough? Are we protected for the long haul? Can we trust that we have a future here? Not just today, but into the future. Is there anything that we can do to secure the future for ourselves? for our offspring, and for our descendants. As we read through the third chapter of Ruth, I can find, barely find any word from God even mentioned in here. 
It's a story where God seems absent and silent. And so Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are all left to say, what are we to do? What are we going to do now? And without a promise from God, I suppose we have no other choice but to say he must have left it in our hands. What are we going to do now? So make your play. Think of your schemes. Do your thing. Increase your value. Put on your best face and try to find your own future. Take hold of what you can while you can. And because it's so hard to find a word from God in this chapter, a secure, safe promise, that we end up turning it into kind of a morality play for us, a tale to look at and say, what is God trying to tell us through the stories of these people since he hasn't come out and told us himself? And so we look at someone like Naomi and we think, look at that. She's wise and loyal and persistent. Maybe that's what God is trying to tell us. Or perhaps we're supposed to put ourselves out there and take a risk, a lot like Ruth. Or maybe we're supposed to be upstanding and upright and compassionate and strong, following all the rules like Boaz. Yeah, the story seems to hinge on Boaz at this point. Naomi and Ruth see him as their protection and their future. He's kind and upright. And so Ruth goes to him at, at night and offers himself, herself to him, offers to marry him by throwing this cloak over the two of them. For she sees him as the one who will redeem her, the next of kin, or as they say in Hebrew, the goel. And Boaz liked the idea. He was willing to give himself to her. He was ready for it. He wanted Ruth as well. He wants to be able to protect her, to give her a future. She see, he sees his future in her as well. But he's not able to go all the way with her. He's not able to give her everything he needs. It's beyond his rights. For he is not actually the next of kin. He knows of one in line before him. There's another who has dibs, who has to refuse Ruth first. And so Boaz gives Ruth all he can at this point. A little affection, a bit of grain, and the hope, most importantly, a little glimmer of hope that their plans might find an intersection and come together in her worthiness and his, and they might have a worthwhile future together. But he has some scheming of his own to do now. And we're left at the end of chapter 3 with a cliffhanger. A wondering of what is to come next. What is going to happen? And when you're left with a cliffhanger and in the lurch just like this and you don't know what's to happen, we are left wondering, are we on the safe side or must we do just a little bit more? So I cannot leave you in this space today with a cliffhanger without knowing of God's gracious word for you. For unlike Boaz, God does not have to wait his turn. 
He jumps the line. He cuts right to the front. Satan has us bound by his accusations telling you that your sin makes him your master, that he will be your redeemer and show you the way out, that he owns you, that you are not good enough to be a child of God. It's that little nagging voice of doubt and uncertainty that Satan uses to keep us searching, asking, is it enough? Are you sure of what God has in store for you? But God doesn't wait his turn. Instead, he cuts right off. He cuts in front of Satan and isn't content to wait for you to make your, wa- your way to him. He's not looking inside of you for worthwhileness. He comes seeking and finding, knocking and hunting you down when you are lost and trapped and even dead in your sin. Not to give you a pathway or advice or a moral precept that you should follow all the days of your life, but instead to give his whole self to you. That is, to redeem you from sin. To take your sin and to give you his life. That is, to be your redeemer. For God has chosen to speak a word to you. A word that levels everything and puts everything old away that frees you from the hamster hamster wheel and ruins the rat race in order to start something new entirely, where you can finally hear that God does not love you because you are worthy, because of your internal worth, but rather you are worthy because of God's love for you. For you are less than your character traits make you think. And you are far more than your accomplishments that never can come to an end. In Christ, you are worth far more than what you own or earn. For you have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. And by his promise, you have been gifted abundant life in the worthiness of Christ your Savior. And on that, you can count. Amen.